You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Good afternoon and welcome to American Theatre Offscript. I'm Rob Weiner-Kent, uh, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. Um, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm coming to you from the lands of the Lenape people. I'm actually in Manhattan today. I'm not at the Delacorte Theatre, which is behind me. Uh, I was at the Delacorte Theatre last night and I was rained out of the performance of Mary Wives of Windsor, the Jocelyn Bio adaptation. I'm gonna go back tonight and hope that the weather's better, the weather forecast is better, and it's a sunny day in Manhattan. Um, today, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Virginia Grice, playwright, multidisciplinary artist, who's about to, to uh, perform her manifesto, not a play, manifesto called Your Healing is Killing Me at three uh, uh, locations in the Dallas area. Uh, she is the uh, Playwright in residence at Caramia Theater Company in Dallas, and we're going to. I'm excited to talk to her. Uh, first, as usual, we talk about what we've been covering and what has been on our mind in the past few weeks since our last episode, the last month's Travis Tate. If you haven't seen that episode, it was a lot of fun. A playwright uh, whose who's play is up at uh, the Dorset Theater Festival. Um, I would just say right off the bat here, J.R. Pierce. Uh, my trusted colleague in Chicago is not feeling great today and also has a big deadline to meet. So he's not with me today. So it's just, just myself blathering about the things that we've written about. And I hope I'll go through this rather quickly and get to our interview with Virginia in just a second. Um, one of our ongoing beats is to cover uh, artistic leaders coming and going into uh, positions at the theater in the American theater. And uh, we had a couple of those of interest in the past few weeks. Uh, one was with Barry Newport, who was for about 10 years, the artist director of Penobscot Theater in Maine. Um, and she's now the new artist director of Gable Stage in Coral Gables, basically Miami, Florida, taking over for Joe Adler, who ran it for 30 plus years, quite a personality. I met him a couple of years ago in Miami. And uh, that's an interesting, uh, small, but very powerful and influential theater in Miami that would kind of do so the Soho rep of Miami, if, if there is such a thing. Um, and Barry is someone, um, as you'll, if you read the piece, you'll know, uh, who uh, was an intern with me when I was editor of Backstage West like 25 years ago. She was just out of college. I think she might've still been in college. She was an intern, she was very quiet. She was a, very smart, wrote some great reviews for us. And, uh, and then it was been a joy to watch her um, her career take off as a, as a director and artistic director. So that's a good interview. Another one we just put up this past week, JR spoke to Sahar Asaf, who's the new artistic director of Golden Thread Productions in the Bay Area. They're a Middle East, North African focused uh, theater company uh, run for many years by Torangia Gizarian. And uh, Sahar is actually uh, from Beirut, from Lebanon. She's done a lot of work here and toured in the US, but she's fairly new to the US theater scene. So she brings quite a, you know, a fresh perspective and it's a fascinating interview uh, with her about how much theater's meant, meant to her 
as a young person growing up in the Middle East um, and the sort of a, a sensibility of, of theater is not escapism, but as a real, as she calls it, a fight forward. So I, I really highly recommend that, that piece. Um, we also um, had a couple pieces about controversies, misbehavior, uh, abuse, um, or alleged abuse, at least I have to say. I have to couch, couch these words. Um, at a couple, couple theaters. One, Walnut Street Theater, the largest uh, theater in Philadelphia, which has faced a lot of criticism and protests over the past few months. And actually, you know, if you dig a little deeper for years about uh, its leader, Bernard Hubbard, who folks have accused of high-handedness high high would be a mild way of putting it, but also some, some sense that he was uh, not a great leader, not the most sensitive leader, and that he would, uh, again, there were some, there were some hints that there was some, something to do with uh, not quite Me Too related stuff, but that he would kind of ran the theater as his own fiefdom. He's still there. Um, and these are all things that he's pushed back on. So the, the, the article gives a fair picture of that. There was also the issue of, of his salary, which um, brings to the fore a lot of issues about uh, uh, disparity in pay in the American theater. Um, Walnut Street Theater is a large theater, about $26 million budget. But uh, most folks have calculated that his, his salary of between six dollars and $700,000 is probably on the higher end uh, of, of artist director salaries. Anyway, that's a wonderful piece by Cameron Kelso, a great Philadelphia writer that I think airs, airs all the issues about Walnut Street Theater. Another theater, which is, go which is gone, it folded because of the controversy about it, is uh, Atlanta area theater Serenby Playhouse, um, whose artist director, Brian, Brian Cloutis, was, uh, was and still is a, a very uh, flashy showman type um, and they did they did uh, productions which were uh, beautifully photographed. So we 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 used to cover them eagerly because the photos were so amazing. They would do classic American musicals and other things outdoors in beautiful spaces. They were best known for a Titanic in which they had an actual, you know, not an actual boat, but a set of a boat over water where people it looked real. The photos were amazing, and or Miss Saigon in which an actual helicopter landed. Two years ago, it came out that there was a lot of abuse behind the scenes. We'd heard murmurs of this, but nothing too explicit. Uh, it became clear that Brian Cloutus and the board there uh, had, had disregarded people's safety to a large degree and had other allegations of racial and cultural insensitivity. It was an implosion. The, what makes it even more sort of a strange story is that Brian Cloutus went on from there to become a, there's no other way to put it than a Trumpist political figure. He's also producing a new production of Oklahoma somewhere in Virginia with James O'Keefe, a Project Veritas, uh, Veritas infamy as Curly. Uh, so he's a fascinating figure. I will just say that Jim Farmer's piece on him in our, for our magazine uh, does a good job of not centering him and his flashy persona concentrates a lot more on the, the alleged abuse and uh, board complicity in his, his regime at Serenby Playhouse. So 
There's a little bit about his colorful uh, personality, but it's, I mean, it's, it, it, as, as with the stories about Scott Rudin and his alleged bullying and abuse, there's a sense uh, in which theater folks love to gossip about the excessive behavior of colorful figures as if it's some sort of uh, uh, party stories. And I think there's a tendency given where Brian Cloutus is now, he's running for, he's running for Congress in Florida as a Republican, um, a sense in which it's like, it's sort of rubbernecking at a, at a, at a car wreck. What this story makes clear is it's not, it's not funny. It's not, it's not a fun story. These are real, real trauma and abuse that, that people have, have experienced. So I highly recommend both of those stories. Um, on a equally momentous, but maybe not quite as traumatic note, uh, equity since our last, uh, since our last um, off script uh, announced a change. I think, we, I think it had just announced it when I was, we were doing it, but we hadn't written about it yet. Uh, announced a change in which they're gonna offer access to anyone who has worked on a stage as an actor or stage manager and has a, any kind of pay stub, they're gonna open their access uh, so that producers can't make the decision about who gets the union, actors can. A lot of implications for organizing and labor, a lot of debates about what this will mean for small theaters and for the union membership and what, you know, union contracts. Highly recommend that we, uh, JR and I both reported this story. We tried to do our best to do an explainer because a lot of folks is closely, even people who follow the theater closely were like, what does this mean? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't followed the ins and outs of every equity uh, dispute and, and contract. We did our best to see what people think is going to happen. Um, open calls might get crazy. I'll just highlight a few more things before we get to Virginia. Um, wonderful piece by Juan Michael Porter uh, II about Donier Love's Write It Out program for writers with HIV, um, which he's expanded and is going to now give a prize as well to writers with HIV. And he's, he's got a kind of a radical hospitality approach in which prior writing experience isn't required. The only thing that's required for this to be part of Joni Love's Write It Out program is that you live with, you're living with HIV and you wanna be, you wanna write something about it. Um, a couple of, uh, of uh, very uh, important uh, figures who passed that we we marked with tributes, Bill Yellowrobe, the great Native American playwright, and Patricia Rusk, a wonderful music director in Chicago who inspired generations of musical theater talent there. Um, I'll just give one last, what, one last piece that we, um, that uh, we just put up. Uh, Thelma Oliver was a, a wonderful actress and dancer in the 1960s, uh, a, a black actress who worked in the, the famous off-Broadway production of The Blacks, and then worked, uh, was in Sweet Charity alongside Gwen Vernon. And in 1970, she became a yoga teacher and changed her name to Krishna Kaur. She's still around. Wonderful interview with her, uh, Q&A about her, her career in the 1960s, when a very interesting time for black, the black arts and black arts movement and artists, and then why she became a yoga teacher and how, that, how that's a sort of, she feels a continuity between those. Um, I think that actually isn't the most, most terrible segue to bring on Virginia Grice, whose uh, new work, uh, your healing is killing me. Um, she's going to perform uh, in Dallas. Is a bit about um, healing, theater, 
alternative methods of healing, Western methods of, of, of medicine. Uh, Virginia, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Virginia. It's good to see you. Um, are, are you in Texas right now? I am. I wanted to just start by asking you a little bit about how things are in Texas. Uh, one thing I didn't note in my, my opening preamble was new concerns about uh, the Delta variant and COVID-19 and what that's going to mean for theater theater opening. But just in general, even apart from theater, how is how is the how is the world in Texas in the pandemic? It's a whole nother country, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, you you are the playwright in residence of, of Karamia. Does the residence mean that you split your time between uh, 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 Texas and the Bronx, where I think your home is? I actually, my home is now in Austin. So oh, okay. I, I was raised in Texas, so okay. I always say that Texas is where the deep south meets the west meets the borderlands. <laughs> you know, um, Gloria Anzadua says this land was Mexican once, Indian always. And so this is this is the, the place in which I grew up is Texas. I went to school at UT in Austin and I'm currently living. I was raised in San Antonio and I'm currently living in Austin again. Okay. So I split my time between Austin and um, and Dallas and um, you know various other communities that I have throughout the Southwest and New York. Right. So you put putting some miles on the car, I guess, right? Driving putting around. Putting some miles on the car when I don't drive. <laughs> oh, you don't drive. I don't. <laughs> so someone else drives, or you? I don't know. We don't have to go into that. <laughs> That's a whole other interview. That's <laughs> <laughs> a whole other interview. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so now Austin is one of the places I've seen that Austin and Houston were the two cities I saw in the news where the ICU beds are at capacity. And again, I don't know how much of this is part of your life directly, but it seems worth asking at this point. No, I think that, I mean, it's an important thing to recognize is that we're not post-pandemic. You know, no. we're, we're nowhere near post-pandemic. And so, um, and, and it's an interesting segue into your healing is killing me because when we begin to make decisions about people's lives that are completely, um, focused on capital and capitalism, mm. oftentimes what ends up happening is that you have a group, a population whose lives are deemed unimportant and yeah. expendable. And so I think that that's being played out in Texas. I think it's being played out in other places. I think there's also, um, as is true in the United States, there's just a huge um there is a, a huge divide in, in leadership that's happening. And so you have, you know, you have mayors putting on injunctions against the governor and the governor trying to mandate things. And, and so it's, it, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very complicated and a very old story in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I know in, in, this New, country. in New York, the mayor and the, the governor, their the, the fighting certainly didn't help. Uh, with New York's response either. Um, so yeah, this piece is a couple years old. So it was written before the pandemic, but it seems like eerily prescient, I guess. One, I guess, as you alluded to, this is a story that's been going on for a while, so it's not new. But does it feel like, uh, especially as, you, as we head into this even more uncertain time than we had expected, um, does it feel like performing this piece is going to be feel more even more urgent? Uh, well, it's it's an interesting thing because your healing is killing me. Really, is a piece about um, 
I began with a list of what was killing me and my people. Mm-hmm. Two-page list. These are the things that are killing us. When you look at that list, that list still rings true today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rising rents, white supremacy, white liberalism. Um, you know, the, the, those, those questions still ring true today. So the, those, those, those um, questions that I was asking haven't... Um, haven't shifted in, in, in a great deal, right? There's still, there's still systemic issues that we're dealing with. And I think that ultimately it's because the piece really is a critique of capitalism. And so I think that as long as we live inside of a system that I don't believe can be fixed, we're gonna continue to have these problems when we're having to, um, when we're having to weigh what is more important, right? right. Um, when, when we begin using prison labor as, as labor, you know, the immediate response is that prison should be full. They're not that prison should be empty. And so yeah. those, those types of contradictions continue to exist. I think that what is true is that COVID and the pandemic really just highlighted so many contradictions and it highlighted all the cracks and fissures in capitalism. Mm. And so what's definitely true is that you became painfully aware of the inequities. You became painfully aware of who we were calling essential and who we were treating as unessential. Um, You became painfully aware of who had access and who didn't have access. So all of those questions really um, became highlighted and then coupled that with the the powder keg that is racism in this country. You know, yeah. all those things combining um, with the multiple murders of people, one after another, after another, after another, of Black lives, um, of Indigenous lives, of yeah. one after another, after another, after another. And I, so I think that there's a way in which certainly this moment, this past year, has been one that has in so many ways amplified all of the things that I was talking about in the manifesto. And so um, I have a section that I'm, I have written that I'll be reading that's directly about this past year. And so oh. that'll be sort of a new section in the piece, but, um, but that won't be in the, in the later show. That's, that would just be in the piece that I'm doing in Dallas. As okay. the, um, and so even with just that newer, even without that newer piece, I feel like the, all the questions that I'm asking are still questions that we're having to deal with today. I mean, the manifesto covers issues like abortion, access to healthcare, um, uh, abolition and mm-hmm. liberation, um, you know, um, uh, class and, and talking about uh, class. And so it's like all of those different things that I think are still, of course, important issues in this moment. Definitely, definitely. Um, I wanted to ask, I, I, I do also think as much as the, the pandemic has highlighted the disparities that even that I feel like there's, you also get it, you're also getting more of a hearing for these kids, like even folks who are not as touched by the pandemic or have been able to escape it or, or have privilege. I think some of them, at least, at least the ones who go to theater, I hope, are, there's, a, there's an opening to, to hear that. Because I, th- I think more of us are feeling vulnerable about it. It's, this kind of moment is raising existential questions that most of us would really just rather go through our lives not thinking about, you know, what is the meaning of America? What, what's our legitimacy? What about my health? Where can I go? Where can I breathe? You know, all, all these things, you know, 
even people of privilege, again, like myself, I'll, I'll include myself, have to think about these things in a way we haven't, we don't usually have to, right? There's a way in which time started functioning in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the biggest, you know, that's, that's, that's something that's really huge about this past year and a half is that time began to function differently. Yeah. And so I do think that there's a way in which people had a different relationship to their own work, especially mm-hmm. in the in the world of theater, our yeah. relationship to work completely shifted. And I think that it also, in some ways, what you're saying of, of shifting hearing also shifted, um, shifted um, priorities. And so I think another thing that's true of the pandemic that we began to see in, um, in material ways is how funding can be redistributed. And so, you know, of course, there are still people that are, are really suffering, that there are still real issues um, around uh, what's happened in this year and a half. Yet I was shocked at how quickly we were able to redistribute funding. Um, you know, within theater, how things happened, like major foundations coming together and pulling money. And so I think that in the absence or in the, um, the bundling of a, of, of a government response, what you have is this also this really strong um, in institutional ways and and just like grassroots, you know, people neighbor ways of what mutual aid looks like, you know, and I think that there's a real sincere commitment to that from people. And so I love the stories like Jack Theater in Brooklyn, New York, who opened their theater to become a food distribution site, I think is really incredibly beautiful. I love the stories of institutions coming together and pulling their money together and making sure that everybody, um, you know, and, and, and having a fund that's larger to serve more people, you know. In San Antonio, there's an incredible gallery named Galleria Eva. And when the gallery had to shut down, the, um, the curator who is a renowned ceramicist, um, who has one of her pieces going up in the Smithsonian next year, turned her entire backyard patio into an open air kitchen where she's making um, comida casera um, on mm. open, open leña, on open um, flame wood burning stoves and she's feeding neighbors and the elderly and the unhoused in her neighborhood and so these ways in which we began I think happened during the pandemic we began shifting funding shifting priorities and having a real focus um, in the hyper local in terms of how we work together and how we make and create together. I want to ask you personally how how you I know I talked to playwrights who, some who thought, oh, this gives me time to, to think and write. Others who's like, I can't focus on my work because I'm so stressed out about what's going on in the world. How has it been for you and your, your work? Have you, has your relationship to time and your work and also your activism changed in the past year? Well, I'm very fortunate. Like, I, I think that I'm in a situation that most playwrights are not in that I'm a staffed member of a theater. Mm-hmm. And so we work in an industry where the people that are the creative producers of the work are not often salaried. Um, Very rarely are we salaried. So most of us are are freelance workers that aren't salaried in any theater. And there's something about that that I think that as a theater um, ecology that we need to look at, that what does it mean that the people that produce the work have no control over 
the production of labor, right? The means of production. They have no, people that are laboring have no control over the means of production. I think that that's a real issue in theater. And so I'm in a very unique and um, incredibly fortunate opportunity to be on staff at Caramia for the next three years through the Mellon Foundation. My residency was set to begin in um, September, I believe, and the Mellon Foundation, when the pandemic hit, called up all the theaters and said, you put them on staff as soon as you can. And so I had a period, I think of about two months where I wasn't salaried. And like most theater artists in the United States, I mean, I saw all of my work for two years disappear in less than 24 hours. It was so amazing how like the call came and then like one call came and then everyone came after that. And so in less than 24 hours, you know, I had all my work disappear. If I had to be in the place of worrying about how I was going to play my mortgage or how I was going to, you know, all of those other questions, um, I I think I would be speaking very differently. Um, Because I'm in the place where I am salaried, um, even though I had several months, even though the impact of COVID, what we often don't recognize, especially with women, especially with women of color, is that we often have to take responsibilities for our family in moments of crises like this. And so even though um, I wasn't affected in the same types of ways, my family, who are majority essential workers, um, were. And so that means that I have to take on that responsibility as well. And so, you know, there's ways in which that happened. And so all that to say that um, in the middle of the pandemic, I think that what has been true for me is I um, didn't feel a sense of crisis of like, how are we going to produce theater when we can't gather audiences? I, I did feel a sense of freedom of being able to create work without worrying about this question of how we market it, produce it, sell it. Um, And so then I just began creating work. And as I began creating work, what I realized is that what I was actually interested in, I love this this quote that you said, theater as a fight forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a beautiful quote, theater as a fight forward. And, um, And I really do think that I came to this place of understanding theater, if the, you think about what we do together, is we imagine a world and collectively we create a world. And then we invite other people to witness this world that we've created. We invite mm-hmm. other people into this world. And I really feel like that's the work that I've been doing for the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. What is the world that we imagine? How do we begin to create and build it? And how do we invite other people in? And to me, all of that is theater. And so whether it's working in the open air kitchen with Veronica Castillo in, in, in um, San Antonio, if it's creating an intercambio, an exchange between artists in New York and Texas, if it's um, you know making coloring books at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things that I did was turn a monologue into a coloring book because I said, all these kids are at home with these stay at home orders, these poor parents and, and caretakers are having to deal with them. And what are the ways that we can teach creativity and art making with only what you have in your house, right? And so right. the very first piece that I did was, was a virtual piece 
that was made completely with things that you could find in your house? How do you create a garden? How do you create a 14 acre farm with construction paper and measuring tape and shadows? And, and how do we put that into the digital world to begin to think about what we make with our hands? And so I think that that's really shifted my art making a whole lot. And, and I feel like with Your Healing is Killing Me, it was the beginning of me saying that I didn't want to only write plays. As a theater artist who writes, as an artist who writes for the theater, I didn't only want to write plays. And I feel like Your Healing is Killing Me was the first um, moment of me being very clear about that. The first line of the performance is, this is not a play, you know? And, um, and so I think that I'm really in this moment, not to say that I'll never write another play, but in this moment, I really am in the place of just exploring writing, voice, and world building with other people. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask about that. Uh, I think there's a, it, it's called a manifesto, not a play. I think that's the word to use for it, right? For your healing's killing me. And I think that there's a, a sense, maybe this is just me as a writer, but I think also theater audiences receive it this way. Oh, but it's not a play. It's just, then it's just a position paper or it's just an essay or it's, it, it doesn't do the symbolic work that a play does or it doesn't, it's not in a piece of art if it's not a play. And I think that having read it and having talked to you and knowing your work, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, there, this is a piece of art that you've made with all the room for the audience to fill with their imaginations and uh, the kinds of things that you do at a play as an audience. Uh, in other words, it's not all on the page is what I'm saying, right? There's, there's room for you to perform it and to, you know, to embody it and, and share that in the space with people. All right. Absolutely. That's absolutely yeah. true. Right. That's absolutely true. And it's had to, it's had to, um, of course, shift and change because of the pandemic. And so this was the piece that I was working on where Kadamia and I decided that we wanted to apply for this uh, residency with the Mellon Foundation. We were working on this piece in a workshop because we wanted to create a touring production of the play. Mm -hmm. And so the workshop production as it stood pre-pandemic was an incredibly immersive experience. Um, I joke that it's my first like um, um, living room drama. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that we had, um, you know, couches on, on the stage. We, we shared the stage with audience. Um, there, there was a, um, one of the things that I talk about in the piece is bone broth and, and, and bone broth soup. And, and so throughout the performance, the audience actually did different things to contribute to the making of this bone broth soup that was then shared at the end of the performance with each other. And so it was an incredibly immersive experience um, that included conversation afterwards that, you know, that, that included gathering. And as you said, had a lot of places for people to to um, fill in the blanks or, or to go, go into their imagination. Mm -hmm. And so of course that's completely shifted and changed um, with the pandemic. And um, what's happening now is the, the woman that directed the piece, Kendra Ware, is um, Gadamia has been really gracious to give another workshop opportunity. And so she's really um, creating the environment or the space in response to COVID. And so in some ways, the performance that she directs is gonna be this sort of COVID response. What I'm doing in the community is a little bit different. And so, um, you know, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but what I'm doing in the community is a little bit different, um, which is much more focused on conversation. Okay. Yeah, that's, a, that's a part from the, these performances you're saying, because I know you're doing a, a writing workshop it, as as an, you're referring to that being the community work, or you're saying that the actual performance? 
I was confused. I wanted to ask you about it because one thing that I don't know if you know the, the Wallace Shawn play The Fever, which he used to perform like in people's literally in people's living rooms. And I was never went to one of these. I, I saw an actual performance of it at an actual theater in L.A. years ago. But apparently the way he loved to do it and used, would do for years, he'd have people over to a dinner party and they'd be talking. He'd be talking to them. And at some point he would just start doing it. And people like sort of sit back and like, and he was then suddenly, suddenly they're in a play. And I, I, I had that idea. I, I don't think this isn't done in people's homes, but can you tell me about a bit about how it's going to be performed and what kind of settings and, and how, what the form of it will be? So, yeah, it's because there's a lot of different moving parts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so Kendra Ware is directing the touring production. And so she's working on a workshop trying to imagine what the touring production can be. Okay. Um, COVID, post-COVID, what, right. what, what can we actually move, right? And so that piece is actually performed by an actor, Florinda Bryant. As, okay. And so then in Dallas, what's happening before we get to the workshop even, I have been in a process with two women from three different communities Pleasant Grove, Oak Cliff, and um, Bachman Lake. Mm -hmm. um, I've been in a process with two women from three different communities in which we have taken the book, we read the book together and sort of opened it up and began talking about if the book is about what is killing us, what do we have in our toolbox as tools for self-defense and community building? What are the resources that we have amongst ourselves and in our communities. And so it's been a three month long process of workshops, conversations, all virtual. And the women are creating their own toolboxes for self-defense. Mm -hmm. And so what is happening is that each group is then gathering other people to have conversations with. And so every toolbox looks very different based on the direction of the women that are facilitating those conversations. Um, one of them, for example, is actually physical, like something that people are going to take away with them, with things inside, a bag with things inside that has um, a connection to um, sort of a virtual resource list that people can mm -hmm. access online. Um, one of them is really focused in a community that doesn't have a whole lot of arts programming or arts um, or um are spaces for art making. And so they're creating a series of virtual um, workshops for people. Um, that's gonna be part of their toolbox. Um, another community has been really focused on this question of language justice and how do we begin to um, create work in multiple languages throughout the entire process. So this entire process has been in both Spanish and English. Okay. Um, and so we've been working in those ways. So, um, so after having these series of workshops with me, they sort of go out into their communities and have a series of workshops or however they decide to do it um, within their own communities, a series of conversations within their own communities to gather what they think are tools for, for self-defense and community building. Um, all of those are gonna be presented. Uh, the toolboxes are gonna be presented um, in, a, in a virtual gathering this Sunday, actually. Oh, this and coming so Sunday this coming Sunday. And so then the intention is to how do we incorporate those things into the actual performances? And so I'm starting by doing a community, a, a citywide 
manifesto writing workshop. So that's the first thing that we're gonna do is the citywide manifesto workshop. And then I'm going to do a performance in each one of those communities. Right. And in okay. each community, I'll be incorporating some of the elements of the toolbox into the performance. Okay. And so okay. the performance in that, in that sense is much more, um, I'm calling it part writing workshop, part conversation, part um, performance. And so it will, it will be much more interactive with the audience. And I really do feel like the bulk of the work is happening with the audience, actually. Hmm. Um, in the conversations that they're having with each other is how that's designed. And so the idea is that if we begin doing this work in the local communities, that that will then also create momentum and audience for when we do the workshop production later in um, September, I believe is when the workshop production is happening. Okay. And the workshop production you're saying is one which someone else will be performing. Yes. This actress you mentioned. Um, I wanted to ask about still the heart of this, the performances that you're, you're doing of your manifesto will be the manifesto will be you, Virginia Grice performing. And I wanted to ask you about, I know you've done a lot of multidisciplinary work and you've performed before, but is that something that you, is in a different compartment of your life performance or is it all kind of, you have to do special preparation for that? Cause I'm, it, this is a, it's a very intimate and from what I gather autobiographical piece that brings up, you know, revisits trauma. I just wanted to know as a, as a performer, you know, do you have to go into a different space to do that? Or are you kind yeah. of- Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm not performing the touring production. Okay, right. <laughs> because you definitely have to go into a different space. And if I'm doing that, I don't write. Um, I just right, right. don't write. Right. And so for the community performances, you know, it's one of the things that I find interesting about the playwright in residence program that the Mellon set up is that the, the premise of it is what happens when you have a, an, an artist on staff? How does it change the way that we make theater? And I think that when you're given that autonomy and control as an artist, it really does change the way that we make theater. It completely just changes developmental processes. Everything changes. And so right. I felt one of the things that's been really great with Garamia is that I've been given a lot of control and a lot of um, autonomy and how I make work. And so with these community performances, one of the things that I said in the beginning and one of the reasons why I'm performing in them is I said, if you're workshopping the play, or if you're workshopping the performance, if you're workshopping the, the touring production, I want an opportunity to workshop how we can imagine this piece beyond the performance. So mm -hmm. how can we imagine community engagement? How can we imagine um, uh, community building outside of the performance? And so that the performance happens and is central, but that we have a different type of engagement with folks leading up to the performance. And so in some ways, what we're doing in Dallas really is a workshop of that. Mm -hmm. So even in this process, one of the things that I discovered, for example, in the workshops that we did, I would restructure them. I would do them a little bit differently. You know, so I have the opportunity to do that type of work, to workshop that type of work, which we often don't do. Often mm -hmm. community engagement becomes something that we give to like the, you know, education department and then yeah. 
you know, and, and it's not, it doesn't involve the artist. It doesn't, you know, and so again, what I'm saying is that this is actually the work. This is actually yeah. the art of this particular piece is a manifesto that goal is that we be in movement, that mm. its goal is that we act. And so what are the ways in which we can do that? And so what I began thinking is that I wanted to really be in deep conversation with communities, even if I wasn't the one performing the piece, how do I become, in, how, how am I in conversation with other communities about what they're already doing in their own their own specific um, place that they're at. And what then do we have to learn from each other from that? You know, this thing about language justice, for example, that was a pushback from the women that I was working with. They mm. said, you can't go to Bachman Lake and not do the piece in Spanish. Okay. And I said, I don't have this piece in Spanish. <laughs> like, right. I'm going to do the piece in Spanish because I don't have it. And the response right. was, we know a language cooperative that will give us resources to do simultaneous translation and oh. to do translation of the piece. And so again, just through our conversations, then we're able to create and open up resources for things to happen that even I, as I was asking people to imagine more expansively, mm -hmm. I was shutting down okay. because I was like, I, 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 don't, I don't have the capacity for that. And yeah. they were like, you don't have to. We do. We have the capacity for that. So, yeah, I, I think, well, I think, you know, it, it is what you said about community engagement often being siloed off. I think it's just, it, it's kind of strange when you think about it, like literally a theater's work is, they call it community engagement, it's the audience. It's what, what, what is theater supposed to be doing? It's supposed to be reaching people. I don't know, this, coming up with this formal term for it, that, that sounds sort of distancing, seems strange. I wondered about... Um, the actual form that the that these other tools and the the community input would take in in the piece of art. So is it there's a, there's the performance is the center of it, I suppose, or maybe you want to you know challenge that that wording. But is there also other content uh, that's part of the part of these evenings? You know that where other people get up to speak, whether there's frames around it or whether there's also you know we might call it talk back or but some a conversation afterwards. I think saying that there's a frame around it is a really good way to imagine it. Okay. With the community performances, one of the things that I did is I sent the script to the same woman is going to be directing the community performances, Kendra Ware. Okay. I sent the script to Kendra and then I had an outline. And the outline essentially had opening for this, opening for that, okay. audience here, audience, you know. And so yes. it is essentially became an outline for what the evening looked like. Okay. And I do feel like it's going to shift a little bit in each place. Um, for example, in one of the locations, somebody gave, you know, one of the one of the visual organizing and movement organizing um, frames of the manifesto is Mao's four minute physical fitness plan. Mm -hmm. Well, in one of the um, communities, one of the women gave the Mao four minute physical fitness plan to a Zumba instructor. <laughs> so I am hoping that we all do Zumba Mao and the last day of this performance, I think would be brilliant. And so yeah. how things shift and change based on that, like there's definitely space um, for that. It's, I, and, and I think that I'm doing this in general with a lot of my work right now is how do scripts breathe? Hmm. How do scripts breathe, shift, change, and transform? 
um, which is very different from sort of a Western way of, of working in the theater where, you know, the, the script, you don't change it, the script, mm -hmm. you know, every word, every, you know, and what I'm actually, what I actually believe is true. I'm less interested in touring a piece that remains static and I'm more interested in how does this, how does the piece change and shift based on who you're in conversation with and where you go, Right. right? And the community performances definitely allow space for that to happen. Um, and so, and, and, I, and, and then I don't know what or how that will affect the touring version that Kendra's working on. Okay. So in that way, we've sort of really siloed the work where I'm like, I'm gonna focus on this community work. You mm -hmm. have the script, you focus on the, on the um, touring version and let's see how these two either are complements to each other, inform each other, or become companion pieces to each other. Hmm, interesting. I do want to ask about the, the Chairman Mao's four-minute four physical fitness plan, uh, which gives you a structure for the, for the piece. And it does seem it's not arbitrary about which particular uh, physical activity relates to each section of the piece. Is that right? I mean, you intend you know, your reach and your punch and your present the bow, or the, is the present the bow, is that right? Um, can you tell me a little bit about, first of all, just your history with that? I think you allude to the fact that it was on a record that you, you heard growing up. Was it the, the, the physical fitness plan? I have to be honest. I can't remember where I learned okay. it. Okay. I have no memory of learning it. I don't okay. know who taught it to me. I don't okay. know where I learned it. I certainly didn't do it in any theater class. People... Okay. People say that, because um, I've tried to discover, I've, I've actually tried to discover this. People say that it's something that's done as as sort of um, uh, as sort of like warm-ups in some theater classes. I have I've heard that, yeah. Doing it in theater classes. My first memory of it was when I taught high school playwriting in East Los Angeles. Okay. And I started doing Mao's four-minute physical fitness plan with students in um, that we're learning playwriting because I believe that, you know, I was taught that if you're a playwright that you should learn all the aspects of theater. So you mm -hmm. should direct, you should, you should, um, you should um, go to an acting class. You should learn something about lights. You should learn, you know, and not because you are gonna be super versed in all of them but because you needed to know how theater functioned, right? So you're asking actors to do a thing, this stories that you were telling about putting actors in danger. Like you're asking actors to do a certain thing as a playwright. And so in order to, to really understand what that means you, you should go to an acting class. And so for me, playwriting is also very physical, which is something that I also really learned during the pandemic is that when I returned to my daily artistic practice, for me, it wasn't writing, it was physical. Mm -hmm. And it was the physical practice that got me to the writing, right? And so with students in high school, they're so awkward about their physical bodies. They don't know what to do with them. They're embarrassed. They don't want to mm -hmm. do in front of people. And so I wanted to have a warm up that was something where they had to breathe together, where they had to um, do things with discipline and precision. And so those that physical fitness plan is very like up, down, out, mm -hmm. you know, it's precision. Um, and, and that they had to do things together in community. So that what they did as an individual affected the way that the block look essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. what you do as an individual affects, affects the choreography of the block. And so every playwriting class, we started with Mal's four minutes. Hmm. 
And they would have to do it as like the bell rang. You know, I was I was at CalArts at the time. So I was driving in and, you know, it was very, very, very rarely I was late. But if something happened and I was not there, you know, right when the bell rang, they better be doing mouse four minutes in my pocket. <laughs> and they would. They'd be there. You know, there was, it became routine. It became routine. I was a very Maoist um, playwriting teacher. And, um, <laughs> But what I realized when when I initially wrote that list of what was killing me, I did it because I was invited to do a performance. Um, it was part of a humanities program at UC Riverside where medical doctors were speaking to humanities professors. And so it was like an advanced seminar and they were bringing in artists to do these performances. And I proposed doing Your Healing is Killing Me before I had ever written it. And mm. so I had the title. And I started with the list of things that were killing me. I had everybody write a list of what was killing them. And as people said those things, even sometimes, you know, that list sometimes is funny, you know, sometimes it's silly and sometimes it's really serious. And so mm. as people were saying it, there was so much tension in the physical body. I said, you, you, you gotta just, you gotta fight back. Mm. You know? And so I had everybody, they would do their list and then they would do three punches. And so when I did those three punches in that moment of that performance, it gave me a muscle memory of mouse four minute physical fitness plan. Okay. And so when I was, when I began working on the script and the script is very like, there's some pages that only have one sentence or some pages that mm -hmm. only have one word. And so the script um, is, is, um, I don't even know if the word fragmented is the right word, but how it lays out on a page gives you information on how to perform it. Okay. And so as I was writing it, I, I kept feeling that there wasn't, there wasn't, um, there wasn't transitionary moments that I was um, satisfied with. And so I, I ended up returning to Mao as like, Oh, what if the transitionary moments are not, written what if the transitionary moments are actually physical and so okay. on, that's what i did with the mouse four minutes it's like how do we release these things that you know mal would probably be rolling over in his grave that he, if he knew that this is how i was using it but how do we release these <laughs> emotional um you know as you were saying like it, there is a there is a lot I, I think there's a lot of humor in the piece but there is a lot yeah. of trauma in the piece so yeah. how do you dislodge that like, is there a physical way for us to dislodge that? And certainly when I was performing it, I felt a real need to physically dislodge things. Um, the writing of the stories wasn't difficult for me um, mm. emotionally. Uh, mm. You know, the same types of things that you normally feel when you're a writer. Writing is very mm. difficult and emotional. Just sitting down in front of a, you know, a blank page is emotional. Sure. Um, but the performing of it was the thing that was difficult for me. The embodying of it the sharing of it with other people witnessing was a thing that was difficult. And it was like that, those four minutes really did something where I could recenter, where hmm. I could um, cycle through whatever it was that I was feeling. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's like a, it, the play is built to, to make it playable and performable in a way. Or, again, it's not a play. Sorry. <laughs> the piece, the piece, the manifesto. Um, we only have a few more minutes, but I just wanted to, I, and this is maybe the, the wrong time to bring up the, the, the main thrust I felt of the piece in some ways uh, had to do, I mean, in the title, this idea that I think there's a whole industry and a whole sort of culture around self-care, especially the past year. People have talked about taking time for yourself and self-care and, and not to dismiss, like that's all has a truth to it. 
But I think one thing your 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 piece brings home is that there's a lot of focus on just making yourself feel better and then getting back to the normal life. And that's that it creates a, a, a structure where we just tolerate, you know. I mean, people, that's been a critique of religion for a long time as well. It's sort of an opiate that makes us feel better. And then we can go back to be, you know, the servant class or, or what serve their, serve our masters. Um, that's obviously not what you're, I, I the, the Audrey Lord quote that you use, caring for myself is not self-indulgent. I've seen that many places. I don't think people as much focus on the next part, which is about its self-preservation. And that's an act of political warfare. And, um, and uh, the few minutes we have, I wanted you to talk about uh, that that sort of distinction between self-care versus self-defense, right? Yeah, I'm at war with capitalism. Yep. I'm at war with capitalism, the way it seeps into our art making and our industry, the way that it mm -hmm. seeps into our daily lives. I'm at war with capitalism. And right. I think that the only way to fight capitalism is to create something better. I say that in the, in the manifesto, yes. to create something better. And so my focus, again, as an artist, is what are we creating together? And what mm -hmm. is this thing that we're creating? You know, what is the world that we're creating? I think is really important. At the beginning of the pandemic, I felt like there was this huge opening in our field and in our industry where everybody was saying, what's possible? Mm -hmm. A year later, it's amazing to me how quickly people have said, we just want to return to what's normal. Mm -hmm. And we want to do something that's easy. And I think that this work isn't easy, but I think it's incredibly gratifying. And I think it's incredibly special. And I think that what we have, what we're poised at being able to create in this moment is um, an opportunity that I feel like we have never had before in my time of doing work, my time on this earth. Um, we have seen things move and shift. And I think that we need to keep, um, I, I love this quote so much. I think that we need to keep theater as a fight forward. Hmm. Thinking of theater as a fight forward, I think is, is the way to think about it. And mm. so what is also true is that this question of mental health is a mm. serious one. Yeah. And what and what the what this focus on self-care has forced us to have as a nation is a is a conversation around mental health. And it is predominantly Black women that are leading that conversation on mental health. And so there's a way in which though, I do not want us to get lost, that part of what's causing such extreme mental distress has to do with those systems and those systemic forces that maintain capitalism. So if right. we really want to get to a place of healing or mental health or stability or vibrancy, we, we have to end capitalism, we have to. Yeah, it seems like it's, you could treat the symptoms, but the disease is what's persistent, right? It's, it's the problem. Absolutely. Another way to put it. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I, I hope that, uh, first of all, break a leg or whatever you would say <laughs> with your performances, but I, I hope that the, the workshop can make it, the tour can eventually wind its way somewhere where I can see it, because I, I would love to see this piece. Um, even just spending time virtually today has been, has been great. Uh, and to read your play, uh, Virginia, I, I hope I hope our paths cross again. Thanks so much for, for spending time with AT Offscript today. And thanks to Anne Charlone, our producer, thanks, uh, for making this happen. Again, uh, again, have have a great uh, have a great performance, a great workshop, and again, we will we will talk again. 
Thank you all so much for having me. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye now.